Over the years, there's been many attempts made to portray God in art or in films. It's quite a difficult thing to do. Sometimes God is pictured like this, as a kindly old grandfather in the sky. In some films, directors have found it so hard to pick someone to play God that they haven't shown God. What you hear is God's authoritative deep booming voice coming from off the screen somewhere to the side. Monty Python famously caricatured God as a slightly cantankerous and unpredictable cartoon character. And then of course more recently Morgan Freeman wore a sharp white suit to play God in the film Bruce Almighty. The question, who is God and what is he like is one that continues to fascinate us humans well we began a new series last week by hearing God himself answer this question and he answered it in the most surprising and unexpected way we were in Exodus chapter 33 and 34 where Moses cries out to God It's a prayer, a desperate plea. Show me your glory. I wonder what you think when you hear that phrase. What does the glory of God look like? What is the glory of God? Perhaps we think of glory in big terms. God's eternal nature. His almighty power. His infinite greatness. His vast knowledge. Maybe we imagine mountains and earthquakes and thunder and lightning. But God's answer to Moses' prayer was very surprising. As God says to Moses, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. We might expect God's glory to be a display of his transcendent greatness. But according to God himself... His glory is actually his goodness. So last week as we began this new series, we saw that astonishing kindness is at the very heart of the character of God. Today I want to develop this idea by unpacking the thought that God's kindness is not to be confused with weakness. Sometimes I think for us, kindness, is, is a, it can be a sort of sentimental thing. It essentially amounts to being nice, doesn't it? Um, I want you to turn back with me today to Exodus chapter 34, because the eagle-eyed among you will have noticed last week that we stopped before the end of God's sermon. We hear God preach this amazing sermon to Moses in verses 6 and 7 and we stopped before we got to the end of verse 7 where God says it's, as, as God describes his compassion and grace and patience and love and faithfulness and forgiving nature God then at the end seems to add a corrective at the end of verse 7 as he says yet I will not leave the guilty unpunished but will visit the sins of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the fourth generation 
Wonderful kindness is at the heart of God's nature. But God is not soft. On first reading, this verse is hard to hear. But remember that God had said to Moses, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. We can easily see how compassion and grace is part of that goodness. But the question we're going to explore today is, how can verse 7 also be part of God's glorious goodness package? Stay with me then in Exodus 34 for one further week. And to help us, I've got three simple statements that I hope will describe the rugged, strong and glorious kindness of God. God's kindness is not weakness, but first of all, it is searingly truthful. One reason that verse 7 seems so hard to hear is that on the face of it, it seems to portray God as vindictively and ferociously pursuing sinners even to the point of a sinner's descendants until he finally catches up with the unsuspecting grandchild. However, we, we know that this verse can't mean that God punishes the innocent for sins they didn't commit because elsewhere God says exactly the opposite. If you're making notes, make a note of Deuteronomy 24 verse 16 where God says this very explicitly. And in Ezekiel chapter 18, there's a whole chapter devoted to this idea that every one of us individually is accountable to God for our own sins, not the sins of other people. But there is a sense, of course, in which our sins, our behaviour, does have consequences for those around us. In the ancient world... This phrase in Exodus 34 verse 7 about the third and fourth generation would actually describe a family group who all live in the same household. In our modern COVID language, this is a bubble. The third and fourth generation, what you would have is parents, grandparents and great-grandparents all living in the same household. And you, you, you'll know that if the leader of such a clan was dishonest or lazy or immoral or had a temper or a problem with alcohol, obviously this bubble would be affected by that. The thrust of this passage is not that God is vindictive, but that sin is contagious. The point here is that sin pollutes and infects and corrupts successive generations. I'm reminded of a verse in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, where Paul says that God cannot be mocked. We do reap what we sow. And I think you would agree with me that history shows that sin and guilt have this way of insidiously passing down generations despite our best efforts. In a sense, this is a spiritual pandemic that we haven't found a vaccine for yet or been able to cure. 
So often we feel, don't we, that our greatest needs are outside of us. Material things, good friendships, happy family, health. But God diagnoses our greatest problem being inside of us, in our own hearts. I, I think our culture has the idea that if we can do enough to educate people, if we can do enough to improve people's external circumstances, we'll be able to eventually eradicate social problems as if sin were some kind of class thing. And of course, it is good for us to strive to make things better, but we often fail to recognise that our deepest problem is not outside of us. It is the darkness and deceitfulness and selfishness of sin itself that blights us. Verse 7 can be hard for us to hear, but there is a kindness in God accurately diagnosing our human condition. God has our good in mind when he tells us the truth. If you went to the doctor, if you could get an appointment at the moment, and your doctor hid from you the truth of some condition, you wouldn't describe your doctor as kind. And consider this too. If, if your enemy says something bad about your character, they're probably doing it to undermine you, to slander you, to frighten you maybe in some way. But God never tells us the truth about ourselves in order to shame us or crush us out of malice. In his great kindness... He is searingly honest with us so that we will turn to him and trust him to save us and forgive us and heal us and restore us. God's kindness is not weakness. Secondly, it is wonderfully optimistic. Just look with me again at Exodus 34. And we'll find there one of the largest numerical contrasts in the whole Bible. In verse 7, God speaks of sin rolling down three or four generations. But before this, he's already said that he maintains his hesed, his faithful loving kindness, to thousands. Do you hear the vast difference in what God says here? I want to put it like this. In other words, even successive generations of human darkness cannot ever extinguish the light of God's mercy and grace. Empires rise and fall. Generations come and go. Human sin does its best to be self-destructive. But by God's mercy and power... The light of the gospel across centuries has never gone out. God is searingly honest in diagnosing our greatest need, but there is also a sense that he's not phased by it. I don't ever want to minimise the darkness and misery of human sin. But the truth is that when I read Exodus 34 verse 6, God doesn't sound depressed. 
God is not the kindly old granddad in the sky who doesn't really know what's going on. And neither is he wringing his hands in indecision or anxiety. There's something in these verses about the unconquerable sovereignty of God. This is not a close contest between good and evil that has an uncertain outcome. God reigns high above this battle and his astonishing kindness will prevail. But neither is this a disinterested, glib dismissal of evil from a God who is aloof or distant. In fact, this God is very near and he has already intervened to transform human darkness when God says to Moses that he maintains his hesed over thousands of generations, what God is doing is preaching the good news of the gospel to Moses. This transformative and glorious gospel, it is only the power of God in this gospel that can change hearts and conquer and subdue the darkness of sin that is within all of our own hearts. Some of you know that I wasn't the best at maths at school. But I did understand the idea of symmetry. You know that, I don't know, I did do maths at school. Maybe I was more artistic, I don't know. You, the idea of symmetry, when you have a pattern that's the same on both sides and it's balanced, isn't it? It's equal. There's a symmetry there. Isn't it striking that as God describes himself and his character and his heart in Exodus 34, that this description is anything but symmetrical? God clearly does not feel the need to balance out equally the descriptions of his love and with, with explanations of his desire to punish. Can you, can you imagine, for example, if, the, if these verses were the other way around, Let's imagine that God talked about his anger for a long time just to make sure that we clearly understood it. And then at the end he said, P.S., but I do love you. That's not what Exodus 34 says. God spends time elaborating on the greatness of his compassion and love and mercy. And then at the end, he gives this brief afterthought in a way to stress to us that we must not mistake the ocean of vast compassion that he is for softness or weakness or leniency about human sin God is holy and will punish wickedness it is precisely because he loves that he is always and forever opposed to every evil that would rebel against his goodness and destroy and deface his creation and us. And in his great power, God will ultimately prevail in that fight. God's kindness is not weakness, but thirdly, it is also perfectly fair. Here's something else about kindness that I think we desire. We, I don't think we want the sort of kindness that's two-faced, do we? 
or um, easily biased or corruptible. One writer I came across this week just reading around this said that God is the one perfectly fair person in the whole universe. God is the one perfectly fair person in the whole universe. Remember what we said about the goodness of God passing before Moses. It's as if God said to Moses, you want to see my glory, Moses? Fire. Here it is. Here is my sheer, undiluted, unpolluted goodness. I'm absolutely forgiving sins. And I will absolutely punish sins. It sounds like a mind-blowing contradiction, doesn't it? But God is saying that both things flow from his goodness. It isn't that one is good and one is bad. The fact that God is a God of love and justice is actually the very thing that makes him glorious. Think about it. Why does God want to forgive sinners? Because he's good. Why can God not brush our sins under the carpet? Because he's good. His goodness drives his love and compassion. And his perfect goodness also drives his justice. It would not be good or glorious for God to be unjust or unfair. A God who allows injustice to triumph and evil to win is no God at all. We know, don't we, in our messy experience that it often doesn't feel that justice is done. But there's a powerful reminder here that there is an ultimate justice in God even though sometimes we are waiting for it with much groaning. God is not a heavenly pushover. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. There is a hell to avoid. And God warns every one of us plainly about our own eternal destiny. We've tried then to explore the idea that God's kindness is not weakness, but it's truthful and strong and fair. It, when I was preparing this week, I got, I got to a certain point thinking about these three themes, and I thought these almost reflect three different human jobs. It makes me think of God as a compassionate doctor who diagnoses our condition accurately. It makes me envision God as a powerful and noble general who will win the war. And it makes me think of God as a perfect judge who always assesses things with perfect wisdom and righteousness. God is astonishingly kind, but we must never confuse his kindness for weakness. Now, as a family, we've always enjoyed doing jigsaws. And during lockdown, Ben bought for Rob an incredible, for his birthday, this was, not just as a random gift, 
He bought Rob an incredible 6,000 piece of... To put it on. And during lockdown, we spent a long time making this jigsaw. The whole family. I remember there was one bit of a cottage with the roof that took me ages. And anyway, we got to the end of this jigsaw and there was a piece missing. Devastating. Absolutely devastating. We didn't know if we'd lost it or it wasn't there at the start. 6,000 pieces. And there was a little bit of my cottage roof that was missing. Spent hours looking for it. Friends, the striking thing here in Exodus 34 about God's incredible sermon to Moses is that there seems to be a piece missing. How is it that God can be truthful and strong and fair and kind and yet forgive sinners? And the real issue for us, of course, is that all of us are among the guilty. None of us lives up to God's perfect holiness. None of us have been the people that God made us to be. The story's told of an older lady who went to have her picture painted by a famous artist. And as she came in to be drawn, she said, I hope you'll do me justice. And the artist was heard to say under his breath, what you need, madam, is not justice, but mercy. <laughs> Very rude. How can God's love and justice hang together coherently? The missing piece in this sermon, the missing piece that this sermon points to is Jesus. Perhaps this is why in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses only sees God's back. Because it's only much later than in Jesus we get to see the front. Moses was not allowed to see God's face and live because the sight of it would have incinerated him. But what if one day humans could see the face of God in a way that would not incinerate them? God preached words to Moses in Exodus 34. But Hannah read to us a few moments ago from John chapter 1. And we heard John say, the word became flesh. He made his dwelling among us. And John goes on to say, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, John is saying, we have seen with our own eyes what Moses asked to see, but couldn't see. We have seen the glory and goodness of God in the face of Jesus who has come to us full of grace and full of truth. Jesus is the missing piece because if you take Jesus out, the glory disappears. You will end up with a God who is either all loving or all judging, but who can't be both. And I, I, I think you know, saying that God is all loving and that he tolerates everything sounds great, but there's no glory in that. 
There's nothing in that that will change people's hearts and transform people's lives and captivate them and make them go, wow. And if God is 100% judging, you're going to become the kind of person who tries their best to get in. God is demanding rather than loving and we must perform perfectly in order to get in. That isn't glorious either, it's crushing. But what if God has found a way to be both perfectly loving and perfectly just? That would be truly glorious and truly good. Recently we were thinking about the cross, weren't we? Where Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This happened because Jesus, who had been looking into the face of his Father and enjoying his glory and goodness for all eternity in that moment, lost it. He took our sin on his shoulders. And he endured the full weight of God's justice. Jesus was God forsaken so that we could be forever God loved. At the cross we see God's astonishing kindness and it is anything but weak. Truth and strength and justice and love all shine there in all their blood-soaked, dazzling beauty. Moses' response in Exodus 34 to hearing God lay out the gospel jigsaw was to bow to the ground at once and worship him. How much more should we bow as we see God place the final piece to show us the full extent of his goodness? One writer says this, we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but we're more loved than we could ever dare to hope, all because of Jesus. If you take Jesus out of the picture, there's no glory. But find him and trust him and you will taste and see and know God's sin-forgiving, soul-satisfying glory. And you'll never be the same again.